This is Dialogue on Teaching, the podcast for the Wabash Center. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, the director of the Wabash Center. And of course, I am with Dr. Paul Myrie, our engineer. Today, we have a very special guest in celebration of the 25th anniversary of the Wabash Center. I am joined by Dr. Raymond Williams. Dr. Williams is the La Follette Distinguished Professor in Humanities for the Wabash College. And near and dear to my heart, he is the founding director of the Wabash Center. Welcome, Raymond. Thank you very much. First, let me say how pleased I am that you're now the director of the Wabash Center. I'm very pleased with uh, Lucinda and Dina's work in expanding the Wabash Center, and I look forward to your good work as director. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Ray- Raymond has... Um, been most gracious and most hospitable, welcomed me to town, welcomed me to the college. Um, He and his wife both have been very hospitable and very neighborly, so I very much appreciate their hospitality. Um, Let's start out, I'm, I'm, uh, during my interview process, Raymond, I think I told you the story, during my interview process, one of the moments that I remember most clearly is when Chris Coble, Vice President at the Lilly Endowment uh, Incorporated, was a part of the research, part of the search process for my candidacy, um, said with great affirmation, great pride, that he still had your the proposal that you wrote to establish the center. So for somebody who reads proposals all the time, has read proposals for years, for him to still distinguish that proposal to me said quite a lot. So just take us back to the beginning, even before you wrote the proposal. What were you thinking about? How did the center become an idea in your own imagination? It happened this way. I became chair of the religion department at Wabash in 1989. And one of the first things we did was a an external review of the department and its offerings. Uh, the college was in a five-year program of reviews of departments, And so it seemed a good time to have a review of our department. The reviewer, a dean from Harvard, uh, did the review, wrote the review to which we paid attention. But in the very last paragraph, he commented that the Wabash Department had a superb reputation among students and faculty and alums and in region, and he thought it might be possible to expand that and attempt to get a national reputation developed. Uh, That was on my desk, so what do you do? And I thought the Wabash Religion Department was committed to two things. One, the teaching of religion in the liberal arts, and two, teaching as a worthy calling and the main work that we do at Wabash College. So I went to Lilly Endowment first for a grant to bring together the 12 chairs of the best religion departments, liberal arts college liberal departments, that I could discover in the U.S. And so we had that conference about teaching religion in a liberal arts context and curriculum. What year was that? Oh, that would have been probably very early 90s, maybe 91, something like that after the review and after I had time to raise money from Lilly. And also then got up, asked for a grant to have a workshop 
for pre-tenure faculty and undergraduate faculty for teaching and learning in theology and religion. And so we had that very first uh, cohort come, and it was simply a one-time grant from the endowment. And we had a superb group of young pre-tenure faculty, uh, including three doctoral candidates at Harvard, Chicago, and Duke, who were recommended by people at, at Duke and Harvard and Chicago. And among that group is a superb group of young scholars, and I've followed some of their careers since then, wonderful, wonderful careers. The idea being you get people young and get them enthused about teaching and make them good teachers, and that will have an impact on their whole career, on thousands of students, and on the discipline itself. Uh, the people who were in that are now named professors everywhere, or just retired directors of uh, Pointer Center at IU, provosts uh, at Emory, the president of Middlebury College, uh, one of the a very famous Jewish archaeologist and director of now two uh, Jewish studies programs. That was just a superb group of people. And uh, the success of that uh, led to future workshops. And first, not at Wabash, uh, I happened to be chair, or excuse me, secretary, treasurer of the Midwest American Academy of Religion, a very nascent of regional development in the AAR, American Academy of Religion. And so I had <clears throat> asked the Midwest region and thereby the AAR and the SBL to sponsor that very first workshop. Uh, Barbara DiCaccini was one of the re uh, regional secretary treasurers at that time and by virtue of that set on the board of the American Academy of Religion. So she was well acquainted with what we were doing. And when she became director of the American Academy of Religion, one of her first initiatives was to think about having workshops on teaching and learning. So we, Barbara and I, went to Lilly Endowment to talk with Craig Dykstra, who was then vice president for religion at the endowment. And she made a proposal and wrote the proposal uh, for a grant from the endowment that would have workshops in all of the regions of the AAR. And she got that grant, and maybe more than one grant over the period. And we, I was chair of the committee that chose the directors and approved the regional uh, programs. And those went in every region, well, except one region, two regions went together to hold them because their membership was small. And that was still early to mid-90s. That's right. And those received a very favorable response. <clears throat> so the next step then was the conversation. I didn't know about that step. I didn't know that <laughs> AAR was a part of it. Yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. Barbara section. was very active. It was very important. She'd just become director and other people had raised money and it was not, she needed to establish her authority. 
and raising that grant, major grant from Lilly, was one of the major steps that Barbara made to uh, establish her position as director of the American Academy of Religion. <clears throat> but the result of that was so positive that it encouraged me to go to Lilly Endowment, again with Craig Dykstra, to engage in conversation about a series of workshops at Wabash College. Uh, even while those were going on, these conversations would have happened in 1994, 1995. And uh, at the end of the proposal, after conversation, he said, well, write a preliminary uh, idea for me. And I did that. And at the end, I said, and oh, by the way, uh, you could uh, establish a Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning that could be the group through which such workshops should be formed. He said, well, we hadn't thought about that, but let me talk to some people. And so eventually we had approval to make first a planning grant proposal. That was 1995. At the same time, a kind of pilot preliminary uh, startup, of, which was also 1995. And I think the first full grant was in 1996, multi-million, to establish the Wabash Center and get the first major workshops going. So that's the background up to the establishment of the center. So as the progenitor, as the pioneer who thought that let's start with a national center on teaching and learning, even today in 2020, Raymond, that's a radical thought even today. So I can't imagine how radical it was 25 years ago. It was fairly new. In fact, there were a few universities, very few, that had a some kind of center for teaching and learning. But it was virtually unheard of. And I believe only mathematics had any kind of professional attention to teaching mathematics. The Mathematical Association had some wig that had teaching under its focus. So it was so a new idea, totally new. Craig Dykstra, people may know, taught of education at Princeton Theological Seminary. So he was fully aware of teaching and learning as being a significant aspect and the, before, the endowment had done a major study of published, funded the publishing, preparation and publishing of a number of books on theological education. And, you know, you can go back and see the names of the big guns who wrote those books. But there was very much trickled down to the way it is on the ground where teachers actually are in, in class with faculty. So... The endowment was interested in helping the study of religion and theology in the country, and Craig was amenable to the idea that focusing on teaching and learning would be the uh, the best move. So let me push you a little farther. Why did you think, obviously you were right, and obviously I agree, why teaching though for you? Why did you understand the power of teaching to transform and to move even an entire society forward? Well, teaching is central to what Wabash College does and did. And I joined a group of excellent teachers and the Wabash faculty 
uh, was a group of excellent teaching. And you could get tenure at Wabash College and be reasonable in scholarship and reasonable in service, as it was called then. You could not get tenure at Wabash by just being mediocre in teaching, no matter how much you did in other things. So that was in the DNA of this place. So that was it. And we had two people on campus that I leaned on, and without whose support and assistance, I would not have started the center. The first of those was Peter Frederick, who was an American historian, who was known abroad nationally for teaching and learning. And he went around the country doing workshops on teaching and learning. And uh, later, not before that, but he, he joined the faculty, I forget the date, I suppose 1972. So he was already well established at Wabash and established nationally. In fact, he was on one leave. He established the Teaching and Learning Center at uh, Carleton College. Mm -hmm. And he, he was dedicated to African-American studies, which was his specialty from Berkeley. Uh, and he, he knew how to run workshops. Without his expertise and support, it would have been very hard to run such successful workshops. Mm -hmm. He actually directed the very first one and was on the staff of the second. And those two really trained the people who would be the directors of future workshops and so forth. And he was he was superb. Uh, the other was Bill Plaker, a Wabash alum, mm -hmm. uh, who came back to teach at Wabash, known as the most impressive teacher in the college, I think, by everybody. Uh, nobody would doubt that. And both of those were excellent scholars as well. Uh, Peter Frederick was the editor of the Harper's text in American history for colleges. He was editor. He wrote the actual teaching materials that they published alongside of it. Uh, Bill Plaker was publishing as one of the best theologians of his generation. And... Uh, you probably remember what what when was your first workshop at Wabash? Uh, like two thousand, two thousand one, yeah. something yeah. like that. I was still I hadn't retired, so you were one of the last workshops before I retired. Mm -hmm. So you know that history very yes, well. I do, and you know that back then teaching in uh, the academy was not highly respected or rewarded. That's right. Okay, idea was you wanted real scholars who would publish. Mm -hmm. And if they taught, that was kind of a okay, but it wasn't. It was a side job, right? You did it because you had to, yeah. not because it yeah. gave you any prestige. And faculty member then referred to my work as being their research, as though they were kind of that was what they were paid to do, and then I also teach. And the graduate schools were not much help back in those days because I don't know about you and your graduate study, but I had a lapel pin underneath my lapel that I'd flash every now and then from one of the major University of Chicago, I'm a scholar, not a teacher. <laughs> so how do you establish teaching as a significant factor? One reason I could do that is with Peter Frederick and Bill Plaker beside me, I could say to people who said, I'm a scholar, not a teacher, I could say, 
we publish more in better places than you do now. Let's talk about teaching. Because that distinction between scholar and teacher, to my mind, is upheld by mediocre people who are mediocre teachers or uh, scholars and probably not very interesting people to begin with. But that's a prejudice of mine. The, the center is now a nationally, even internationally known uh, for changing lives, for immersing people in critically reflective teaching, for helping people understand what it means to have meaningful scholarship that teaches, right? So teaching is not separate from scholarship. Teaching is a venue for scholarship. Did you imagine that the center would become this deep and this wide? Oh, no. No, I had no... I couldn't see that far in advance. Uh, I was just trying to keep it going till the next grant period <laughs> so we could you know, have workshops and then we could continue it. And uh, as you well know, Lily makes grants for at most three years, mm -hmm. and then you have to go back for renewal. Mm -hmm. So, and actually I didn't retire until 2002 because I'd promised Craig I would write the, the, the next grant proposal so it would be in the hands of Lucinda or whoever was chosen as director. So no, I did not think that. What I thought was that if we improve teaching, we will improve the lives of faculty members, first of all. Now, maybe you did never had the experience of walking down the hall after a class like a lead uh, scarf around your neck and said, oh God, I hope nobody heard that or knows what went on in that classroom. It was a failure. Now, nothing destroys a person's vitality any more than that experience over and over and over again. So if you can improve that, first of all, teaching, so that people don't have that experience, but have some excitement about teaching and what's happening with students, uh, then their lives are, is go are going to be improved. And that's what we hear in the evaluations. Uh, one woman said to me, "This now I know why I got into teaching in the first place. Mm -hmm. Or another, I never thought I would, a director of a program thought I'd, I'd never have, never thought I'd have this much impact on young faculty, much less on my students. Now, the teaching, the Wabash teaching and learning in theology and religion is a, is a mouthful, intentionally so. First, I hate acronyms, as uh, some people know, and think it really is the snobbish uh, inside language of the few people, and fewer people you get who know that acronym, the smarter you are and the more narrow your scope. So it's hard to make an acronym of the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning in Theology and Religion. But... <clears throat> The theology, t teaching, and learning is there intentionally because that's there because of Peter Frederick. He said the focus should not be on the teacher. The focus should always be on the learner. What are the students learning? How are they learning? What do they enjoy? How do you get them involved in the exciting discovery that real education is all about? So... I would say teaching and learning, and he'd say teaching and learning. You understand the <laughs> yes, emphasis there. Yes, yes. And he won, and he was right. And so it's always Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning. 
in religion and theology. So a, a dimension that I have learned about you in the short time that I've been here is that you are a scholar of religion. You are also a man who practices your faith. Your commitment to teaching and learning and to a life of teaching and, and to helping people teach better, I think, if I can be bold, grows as much out of your own practice of religion as your scholarship on religion. I, I think one's life grows out of what one is committed to and what you think is true to know and what is good to do. And teaching is involved with both of those. Yes. How do you know what is true to believe or to affirm, and how do you know what is good to do? And we have all the wisdom of the world that helps us sort out, try to sort out the answer to those two questions. And those are the two fundamental questions, I think, of the liberal arts. And that's, that's basically a religious affirmation, or could be a religious affirmation of what I believe to be true about human, about the world and its reality, its creation, its future, its good, and what I think is good uh, to do. Uh, th those come in my sense out of a Christian tradition. I think Wabash College, as a private independent college, not church-related, they didn't care very much what my religious affirmation was, and we never ask anybody in our workshops uh, what their religious affirmation or disaffirmation might be. We had a Jewish scholar, as I said, in the very young pre-tenure faculty in the very first workshop we had. Uh, we Wabash Center did then, and I think still does, try to uh, have a big, wide umbrella yes. that everybody who is willing to come in and talk about teaching and learning. But what we found, interestingly, was that discussions of teaching and learning bring people from a wide variety of ideologies and religious affirmations and life experiences together, and they come around that topic of how do I become a better teacher and how can my students learn better? They're on, they're on common ground. So the genius of the Wabash Center from its inception for me and from my experience as a participant and now as the director of the program is the agenda of our workshop our workshops do not don't lack agenda we have an agenda but the agenda around teaching is to have conversations that they can't have most people can't have in their own institutions that in and of itself is a gift to our participants so peer leaderships peer leadership gathers to have this very necessary conversation in a place that is not neutral, that, you know, has an agenda, says this conversation is important, and we want to centralize this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, we have very few sort of affirmations. I suppose you and I could sit down and write the teaching and learning from students is very important. Education about relig religion is increasingly important in our country and in our world, and we could go down those lists. Now, if somebody is not interested in teaching, and if they're not really interested in religion, then I don't see why they would necessarily want to participate. But if they are interested in those two things, and they teach, and we 
at the beginning, we had a PhD requirement. You had to have finished your PhD before you could participate. Uh, then you were welcomed at Wabash College and in our workshops, and we tried to do everything. That doesn't mean we hid who we were or who this person was or that person, because when you get a, a really free society, you could share with one another at very deep levels, but you have to be safe and you have to be free. Now, how many pre-tenure faculty are really safe with their colleagues in the department? People who are going to make decisions about their future and their salary increases, their possibility of tenure, reappointment, all those things. Can they be really free in those contexts? Here they could be. That's right. And that was a right. freeing, liberating. Uh, and, and in some sense, that kind of what we might call academic freedom, but also personal freedom, if it's not preserved for faculty members, then we have no right. I mean, if it's not preserved for students, we have no right to claim academic freedom for faculty. Students also, faculty sometimes forget that students also have that right uh, just as well as faculty. And if, if students don't have it, then faculty don't deserve it. The, the life of the mind, by, by your philosophy, is the same as an integrated life of teaching. So the life of the mind, you're, that, that, that a teaching life is not just about the neck, a neck up experience, right? Literally, physically, the neck up. That it is the whole self that you bring into the classroom, that you risk bringing into the classroom. Yeah, I, I wrote, I gave a lecture at the University of Iowa on, to their uh, department, uh, what are we professing here? Mm. Okay, and that was published. So it's a published article in a chapter in a book on, I forget the title of the book. But anyhow, the point is, you, you, you don't, you can't be neutral in a, in a classroom. That is, you can't be a, a, a slate that's empty. You can't be an empty person. I learned this, in, interestingly, Peter Frederick, who was a specialist, as I said, in American history, in African-American history, and in slave experience. And he said, the slave always knew the master better than the master knew the slave. That's right. Okay. And the students always know the teacher better than the teacher knows the student. And the two students know more about you as a teacher than you think they do, and they're more interested in you as a, as a person, if you're an interesting person, and that helps them to get interested in the subject matter. So uh, I make a big distinction between preaching from a pulpit in a congregation that invites me to do so occasionally and speaking in a classroom where you are creating a totally, not a totally, a distinctly different interpretive community. A, a congregation has an interpretive community of religious affairs. And an academic classroom governed by the disciplines of the academy, the discipline as it has developed, has a, it, you create in every classroom an interpretive community. I know the distinction, so I never tried to preach. I, as you may know, my main subject was New Testament. But most of my publications and much of my uh, teaching was also in Islam and the religions of India. Uh, and 
I got into that area because we needed help in teaching those courses at Wabash. So it was a teaching move in a sense, learn more about it so you could teach it. And uh, I sometimes thought I preached more Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism in my classes than I ever feel comfortable teaching, uh, preaching Christianity because our students needed to take it seriously. Uh, maybe I didn't preach, but I, you understand yes, that, yes. that point. Yes. But you can't hide as a teacher. And if you try to, you become over, come over to my mind as kind of a black slate. Or inauthentic, right? Inauthentic, you, you, yeah. You're inauthentic. They, yeah. Students are reading you as text while you're in the classroom, and they're experts at Precisely, that. precisely. So you are aware, more than aware, you are still immersed in higher education now as a retired person, but still immersed. What... Tell us what you see. Tell us, tell us. Well, the good news, I see a much more robust interest and support for teaching and learning than certainly was the case back in the early 90s. I don't think any graduate student could put on that lapel pin saying, I'm a scholar, not a teacher. And in fact, we require more, too much of our graduates coming out in both publication and in teaching experience that is healthy, I think. But nonetheless, teaching has, has been, it's been elevated. elevated. Mm -hmm. And we started very early the journal of teaching theology and religion. And the reason for that was one way you established a, a, some area in the academy was to publish a journal. And so we decided we would try to publish a journal. And back in those days, it was a very incipient uh, use of the Internet. Now, people forget how nascent <laughs> it was back then. Yeah. But it was theoretically possible, and I suppose even practical, that we could have put a journal online back then. It would have been very clunky, very slow, and not very many people would have had access to it. But we could have done it. But to do that would have been to sideline teaching and learning mm. in order to have academic respectability and hope that it might help people uh, toward tenure. You had to have a published journal print and by an excellent, well-known publisher. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. Those were the requirements. Fortunately, Blackwell approached me. I guess they had heard that I was interested in that. And they approached me at an ARL meeting and asked if uh, we could talk about publishing a journal. Now, the background for that is the British universities were already getting pressure to show what's the outcome of their teaching. Okay? The reason for that is that the Government University Grants Commission gave money to the universities big time to support their students. They were getting asked, how do we know we're getting our money's worth? You know, you, I can count the pages of publications you do, but what about the students mm -hmm. who come? Mm -hmm. And so there was an incipient move for evaluation and focus on teaching in Britain. And I think that's the reason why Blackwell in Oxford searched for a, a journal in teaching and learning or started planning for one, and we stepped into that. Mm -hmm. So we were very fortunate. But you... Back in those days, and you remember those days, <clears throat> very early we, we got 
uh, submissions, and we'd do peer review. The editorial board would make a decision as to what we'd publish, and I'd put it in Blackwell Press, in press, and it'd be on its way. And one uh, edition was in press, and one young pretender scholar wrote to me and said, could you please hold my article until later because some members of my department told me it would not help me for tenure. It would actually hurt me. <laughs> and say, so I spent my time in that way. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know the current practice, but early on we always gave a stipend to faculty who went, came for two summers. At the end they got a stipend. Mm-hmm. And the stipend was for the summer after they completed their workshop and it was for a project that had to be approved by their dean, and it dean had to affirm that completing this project would be considered favorably for for tenure. And our idea for those stipends would, I mean, obviously pre-tenure faculty particularly need all the stipends they could get, but the idea was if somebody spent two major components of their summers working on teaching, then we wanted them to be able to really produce. So having some freedom to work on whatever article or whatever they were going hoping to publish, but with the approval of their dean, would help them not only as teachers, but would help them as scholars. And I think that worked. So much of the center's programming from its inception integrated the teaching life, integrated scholarship and teaching, integrated your own personal convictions to be an authentic person in the classroom. In addition to the journal and the stipends that are given, the grants themselves, the the projects that came out of and the influence that came out of the grants, the projects that were received by grants, have changed schools across the country. Yeah, Uh, let me tell you how that came about. Uh, But first let me tell you a story. This was from last year, I think, or year before. You know, money comes, the Wabash Center is what we call a regranting institution. That is, Lilly gives the Wabash Center or Wabash College a, a sum of money to run the center, and part of that is money that can be used for regranting. Uh, in small amounts, to be honest, the endowment is too busy to run, work with, you know, $50,000, whatever they are currently. Uh, and last year, one of my trust, a trustee at Wabash was talking to me and he said that he was on the audit committee of the trustees and the audit committee of the trustees was going down through the audit piece by piece as they did every year and one of them ran across that we'd written a check to Harvard University and he said what in the world is Wabash College doing writing a check to Harvard University and with their, with their giant endowment yeah, yeah. but it, that was to help their faculty with teaching and learning and uh, you're right, it, it has changed, and it has helped change not only what happens in colleges, universities, and theological schools, and divinity schools, but it's happened what, it's changed what's happened in the PhD programs of universities. And uh, in the beginning, we were not a regretting institution. Uh, Lilly had not established very many. In fact, I think Lex, the Louisville Institute was the only institute that gave small grants to people oh, for study okay, back then. Okay. So it was a new thing. And when we first started, they they didn't let us do regranting. But then they 
opened it up so we could be a regranting institution and regranting. And uh, that was a part of the expansion of the, the program uh, so that uh, more, we, you know, we started with theological school faculty uh, in part because the AAR was still doing their regional thing. And, but our very first one was on pre-tenure faculty at undergraduate colleges and universities. So we began focusing on, uh, you know, undergraduate faculty, pre-tenure faculty in colleges and universities, pre-tenure faculty in divinity schools, theological schools. Then we, we decided to do some other things and decided that sub-discipline-specific colloquia would be good. And since Bill Plaker was here, the very first one was on theology. That was... I don't know, 96, 97. And uh, he led that superb group of scholars. Miroslav Fulf was in that group. Uh, uh, Dina was in that group, uh, in that very first group. So that was very good. And then we, we started uh, mid-career workshops, hope, thinking that people that had sort of made it and gotten established and everything probably needed another oomph and focus on teaching, could focus their attention and everything, uh, re redo it and revitalize their careers. So that's a part of the revitalization. We also, Peter Frederick and I got together, we invited the deans and, and, or uh, program directors of their PhD programs in religion. And we invited people from the ones that produced the most PhDs. This would cross the board from Fuller to Harvard to, you know, conservative. All if they if they were in the top tier, I forget how many we invited, maybe twenty or twenty five, uh, and we invited them. I think for a three day conference, and Peter and I, Peter led that. I we 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 led it together. I have never ever worked so hard in a workshop. There wasn't a single ego in the room. I'm okay, you're okay, we're doing fine, thank you very much. It's all those other people that are causing problems. Peter and I worked for two solid days. Harvard sent their, not their dean, not their director of graduate study, but a student, their head tutor, mm -hmm. who was a graduate student. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to get them to focus on the importance of teaching for their students. And finally, the last day, we began to get a glimmer of light. But that's the context in which the center began. You have to understand that context to really appreciate what uh, Lucinda and Dina and you are doing to keep that light shining so brightly as it does now. Uh, that That's an amazing accomplishment over these years. And the associate directors, Paul and Tom, and all the other staff as well. Uh, it's it's amazing. Uh, both the diversity of people we've had at Wabash. How many is it now? Over 1,200 people have been here in a suburb workshop. I, I don't keep track of all that, but I know some time ago it was well over 1,000. So um, having that many. And it, when you do a, a start a center or even a proposal, you, if someone told me, if you don't have a clear sense of a clientele, you don't have a mission. That's right. That's okay. right. 
If you don't know who it is you're trying to reach, I'm preaching to the world. No. So I said, our clientele to Wabash Center is 10,000 people who teach theology and religion in colleges, universities, theological schools, divinity schools in the U.S. and Canada. Okay. That's 10,000 people. That's our clientele. So you have to keep that clearly in mind. And then you have to avoid mission creep. You know, mission creep is the, is the bane of higher education currently, as you know. And so the, the, our mission has always been teaching and learning theology and religion. And we go at that in different ways, but that, that is an invariable uh, mission that we have. And Lily's willing to fund it as long as they're willing to fund it. The college willing to, to support it. Then we, I'm sure, uh, it continues. That's the good news. The bad news is that once you get teaching established, my humble opinion, the major problem isn't how do you teach in the liberal arts or even in divinity schools, but what do you teach? that is necessary, let's say in liberal arts, what is necessary for your students to learn in order to be well-educated, free individuals, and able to govern a free society. That's right. Okay. And we don't have a, we, people, I, I include myself at the academy, though I'm retired, it has come that the academy doesn't have a clue as what that we should teach, what every student ought to know, or be exposed to, and that's a part of the fragmentation that's happening. And we don't have leaders in the academy, and I confess we don't have the leaders in the church, and God knows we don't have the leaders in the political sphere to be able to try to help us uh, go through the shoals of what is it. Uh, we're becoming more and more what we are becoming more and more like what Jacob Neusner once said as his definition of the modern university, where anybody who wants to teaches anything at all to whom it may concern. And that seems to me to be the pressing issue in higher education right now. And Wabash Center doesn't have a mission to define that. It's to help people who are trying to define that, know how to teach their subject better and reach students in a more uh, compressed, uh, more important way. I think the reason why religion flourishes on college campuses is students want to deal with the big questions. And dealing with the big questions of life, its meaning, truth, what is worth believing, what's worth giving your life to, what's not worth giving your life to, what's worth doing, good to do, what's not. Those are the big questions. And religion is has always fundamentally dealt with those big religions. And we've got a wealth of the world of people who've given thought to that in every generation and in every society. If we marshal that, then we ought to have the resources to begin to make some progress. And we're just playing with trifles in many ways, playing our little games with one another and not getting serious about what, let's say, just American society needs in order to survive as free individuals in a free society. And I think religion departments are 
centrally related to answer that question or help students answer, not, not answer, help students answer that question and also then maybe to make some little dent in helping society adjust to the rapid changes that are taking place. So the good news is if there wasn't a Wabash Center, there should be one. Amen, sister. <laughs> <laughs> and the good news is that as the progenitor, as the pioneer, as the creative, imaginative thinker, as the community-minded person who planted this seed 25 years ago, that you are still um, a part of our community, a, a vital part of our community. It seems too modest to say thank you, but Dr. Raymond Williams... Let, let me say one you. more thing. Yes, sir. Somebody, a politician, I think, says it takes a community village to raise a child. Mm -hmm. It makes a whole faculty to make a good teaching institution, and it made a goodly number of people to start the Wabash Center at the Religion Division of Lilly Endowment mm -hmm. in Wabash College, mm -hmm. and no one person could do that. So it's a cooperative effort, and I'm just delighted to have had some small part in it. But thank you, anyhow. 25 years of the Wabash Center, influencing the nation, supporting teachers. As a participant, I would say even saving lives. We thank you, Dr. Raymond Williams. Oh, and I'm so very grateful to be a part of it, to have been a part of it, and to be able to watch how it develops in the next few years. And we're out.